The scripture reading for this morning comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Um, on this uh, warm holiday weekend, we've been looking at uh, the past couple of weeks, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, it's possible to grow up in the church. It's possible to live a very moral life. It's possible to be a good person in the church and not have a personal relationship with Jesus. So how do you know? How do you know? And the Apostle Paul says, well, Christians, they bear fruit. And today we're going to be talking about joy. It's a, the joy dimension of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, the gospel fruit. But you have to know that the Apostle Paul isn't writing this uh, text while he's on vacation. He's writing about this while he's in prison, while he's in chains. Paul is literally in prison. He's literally chained to members of the Praetorian Guard, and essentially he's on death row. And that means that 24-7, all week long, 365 days a year, somebody is literally chained to the Apostle Paul. And yet, in verse 18, two times he says, I rejoice. Twice he says that. How? What does Paul see? What does he have that we don't have? What does he know that we don't know? Well, I'm going to tell you. We're going to look at four things today. Uh, we're going to look at life's difficulties, life's ironies, life's secret, and life's power. All right? Life's difficulties, ironies, the secret, and the power. Because, because Paul understood these things, he was able to do, endure any circumstance, which means that if we understand these things, we'll be able to endure 
any and every circumstance. First, we're going to look at life's difficulties. Verse 12, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me really served to advance the gospel. Paul's giving uh, the church in Philippi, he's giving the people in Philippi hope, some hope. Why? It's because they were losing heart. They were getting discouraged. They were, they were starting to, to, to get sour on this and, and lose heart. And why? It's because the Apostle Paul, he was a great leader. He was an incredible leader. He was a brilliant theologian and philosopher. Time Magazine ranks him in the top 35, I believe, top 35 most influential figures in world history, and he's perhaps the greatest church planner that ever lived, and he's in the prime of his career, but now he's in chains. It looks like his entire career, this movement, the momentum has stalled and it's derailed and everything's about to come to an end, And here's the lesson. And the lesson goes like this. You don't come to Jesus because he fulfills your life, even though he may fulfill your life. You don't go to Jesus because he fulfills your life. Because lots of times, it will not be fulfilling. Look, I'm a pastor. And I'm going to tell you, I'll be the first to tell you, I got front row seats to this, that following Jesus and being a believer and being in a church is not always going to be fulfilling. Many times it's going to be, that's the first point, challenging. It's going to be hard. At the least, many Christians, they give up a lot of life's comforts in living the Christian life. At the least, maybe your career will kind of shift. It will advance perhaps slower because you're a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, you could be passed over for certain roles because you're not that same person that everybody else is. You're not a killer. Maybe you're going to be left out of certain social circles because of your values. And when those things happen, I mean, it's, it, it's painful. Those are subtle and small persecutions, right? Today, we may not be executing people in this country. They do get executed in other countries. We are incredibly fortunate to, to be in a country that allows us, at least right now, to have the beliefs that we do. But the reality is, when these things happen to us, we ask ourselves, I mean, is God really for me? Does God really love me? Is he really with me? Because if he was, why would my life be getting derailed like this by difficulty and illness and hardship and tragedy? As a pastor, I'm often asked, if God really exists, then why does he just get rid of suffering and evil and death? That's why I can't believe in God. It's why he must not exist. And the reason why they're saying that is because they believe, we believe, that the visible world The visible reality is all that there is. What's visible reality? Today's reality, right now, what is visible to you, modern circumstances, what your eyes can see, what does it say? It's always the strong consuming the weak. Aristotle or some philosopher said that all of life is a power play, natural selection. And it's difficult to see where God is in this type of worldview. So, To get rid of the problem of evil and suffering and death, we get rid of God. But then you have a bigger problem because then you're giving into the idea that this is how it is. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. This is natural. It's natural for for high people to oppress the the low people. It's natural for the the rich to devour the poor, to take advantage of the poor, to exploit the poor. It's natural then for the strong to overcome the weak. That's how we do it. But 
if that's what you believe, then you can't cry. You can't cry over losing somebody in life. You can't cry when you lose a loved one. You can't cry, I mean, God forbid, you can't cry over rape or molestation or anything like that. Now, some of you, you're sitting there and you say, whoa, I mean, that's, you're wincing. Why? Because you know that you can't help when those things happen. When injustice and oppression and murder and rape and molestation, when those things actually happen, you know you can't help but get angry at those things. Something inside of you is telling you that that is unjust. That's not the way it was meant to be. Our visible world, visible reality says, but that's just a strong over the weak. That's just a strong eating the weak. It's natural. But only Christians, only Christians can truly know that evil is a problem. Sin is a problem. That's not the way this world was designed. Life's difficulties are a problem because we have been created in God's image. Only the Bible will tell you that we've been created in God's image. And so you are born with, you are created with, you have been given transcendent moral character transcendent moral judgment you can say that there is a right and a wrong because there is an objective right you can say that it reflects the nature of God and that's how we've been built and that's how we've been created and it goes against what we oftentimes see against what is visible in other words Christians they don't go to God because he just merely fulfills them even though he does and he may Christians go to God because he's real Christians go to the word of God because it's true. There's a reality beneath the visible reality. But if you don't believe in God, the visible world is all you have. And you're alone, that means. That means every evil is not only conceivable, but it's allowable. You're going to have to reconcile that. The Apostle Paul, he's in prison, and he teaches us that life is difficult It's not always what we may expect or desire or hope for. And yet, he still had joy apart from this. He talks about life's ironies. That's the second point. Verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, I want you to see that what looks like the end of me is really turning out in a way that I didn't expect myself. He's surprised. He's actually in wonder. In verse 19, he says, I want you to see what has happened will actually turn out for my deliverance. What does that mean? Paul's not saying, I mean, I thought that this is what Paul said when, I, when, we, you know, when you're younger and you're kind of young in the faith and you're reading this text, you think what Paul's saying is that, oh, this is going to, I'll get out. God loves me. I'll get out. That's not what he's saying. And Paul's certainly not saying, well, this is good. I mean, I know it sounds really bad. Um, we call that Leibnizian optimism, right? If you're a philosophy major, this is good. It's a, this is a good thing. That's not what he's saying there either. What he's saying is, yeah, what, happens, what happened to me, it looks bad. I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible and it feels bad subjectively, but it's actually good objectively. That's what he's saying. Why? He says in verse 13 to 14, this is amazing. Now, even the guards that I'm chained to, they have no choice but to listen to me. They have to hear me talk. All of them now know about the gospel. 
And even more people are because of this, they're gaining courage, the courage to preach the gospel. They're coming out of the woodwork, and they're actually starting to preach the gospel. He's saying what the Romans thought would be an end to the church is actually now accelerating the movement of the church. It's actually growing even faster. In fact, the way it looks right now, we may need to plant a church in prison. In verses 15 to 17, he says, some people are preaching out of envy, some people out of goodwill, some people out of love. Other people maybe selfishly, maybe to cause trouble, maybe to cause trouble for me. Verse 18, what does it matter, he says? Jesus is preached. They thought that if I was chained up by chaining me up, this would be the end of the church, or maybe this would be the end of me and my ministry. But the gospel is the power of God. And they didn't learn this the first time around when they arrested Jesus and chained him and executed Jesus. They didn't learn the first time around that that power was released, not despite difficulties and suffering and humiliation and the death of Jesus, but through difficulties and suffering and humiliation and the death of Jesus. Because the gospel, you could chain me up, you could lock me up, you could hold me fast, you could hold me down, but the gospel is not in chains, he says. Yes, my experience looks bad. Yes, this certain, this current time looks bad. Yes, the visible reality looks bad, but there is a reality that is greater than this reality. And that gives them joy. One by one, the Praetorian Guard, they're becoming Christians. And now I'm getting a glimpse of God's plan. So he's saying, yeah, I definitely wouldn't have planned it this way. I definitely wouldn't have planned it like this. But look, God is a genius. This is amazing. And it leads me to rejoice. Because God is using the worst circumstances, the worst brokenness, the worst evil, the worst sin to unravel his plan to bring about ultimate redemption through Jesus, through the ultimate redemption of the world. If God is using the worst suffering, the worst circumstances, the worst brokenness, the worst evil to unravel his plan to bring about redemption, that means nothing can ruin you. Nothing can ruin me, he's saying. Throughout biblical history, God works through the weak. He works through the barren. He works through the younger son when, when the world was pushing towards the elder sons, always. He works through evil. He works through the outcasts. And so what happens, right? I mean, every dead end you meet, you see it the Bible, every dead end, and yet God works through Sarah, who is barren. He works through Jacob, who is the younger one, over Esau. He works through Leah, who is the ugly one, over the beautiful Rachel. He works through the betrayal of Joseph by, Joseph by his own brothers, and he works through Rahab, who was a prostitute and an outcast, to bring about salvation and the redemption of his people. Time and time again, through every era, every decade, every eon. So Paul, I mean, he was a biblical scholar, and knowing this, he says, no one knows the whole story up front. The darker it gets, the more we wonder. The darker it gets, what I didn't expect to see, what I did not know, it was not revealed to me, and yet it does not bring me despair Rather, it brings me wonder, and it leads me to rejoice. There's joy, a joy that doesn't come despite suffering, but a joy that can only be birthed 
and endures through every suffering. Today, you know, you come across a roadblock in our kind of microwave generation. Uh, today, you come across a roadblock and your instinct is, how do I get out of this? That's the first instinct. That's natural. You know why? Because you're still living in the survival of the fittest, natural selection world. I got to survive. I got to win. I got to, how do I turn this thing around so that I get out of this mess? I got to make my own luck. You're still living in that visible reality that you are alone. That you are alone in your struggles, that you are alone in your trials. That when you are betrayed, oh, I'm alone here too. Now I'm really alone. Not Paul. Paul wonders, how is God working through this? That is not something you gain naturally. It is a supernatural thing. God's spirit residing in him, and that's why the fruit of the spirit, it's born of the spirit of God working in your life. In verses 19 to 20, Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help given to me by the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me has turned out will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage. So his prayer is not, get me out of this. His prayer is not, how do I, how do I turn this thing around? His prayer is that, give me the courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. That means now, right now where I am today. Not I will praise you if you get me out of this mess. Not I will praise you if you get me to that point where I can sign on the dotted line. Not I will praise you once I get this because it is hard. He's saying, now, in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm going to say it to you another way. He says, look, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. Whether I live or whether I die, but I know one thing is for sure. God will grant me the sufficient courage so that he will work through this and through me and he will spread the gospel through me. He is certain of that. And it's happening. He says, look, this is, it's happening. I mean, I'm in jail and it's happening in jail. That means that God has an eye for everybody. Paul recognizes I mean, he's in a valley right now. He's going low. And he recognizes that he's in that valley. In a valley, you never have a clear view. Some of you have been in a life valley for a very, very long time. And in a valley, it's windy, it's treacherous, and it's dangerous, and uh, it's dark. A lot of times, you don't, and you can't see in a valley. There are mountains everywhere, so you don't really know, am I Am I heading in a good direction? There's no clear view. Only at the mountaintop can you see everything. And Paul isn't there. Most of the time, we're not there, right? But he trusts that God is at the mountaintop, and he's got the fullest view. So he knows he's going to trust God, God who is at the top of the mountain, he knows that God's going to work through every evil, every brokenness, every suffering, every difficulty, every hardship, even death, whether by life or by death, even death in order to accomplish his plan. Because of his encounter with Jesus Christ, that was real. Because of God who is real, and he knows, and it's true. He places his trust in God at the mountaintop. When you place your trust in God at the mountaintop, 
your suffering, it's still going to bring you discomfort. It's going to be incredibly uncomfortable still. It's, that's why Christians, you don't need to look for suffering. I mean, there is a whole, there are a whole group of believers that are out there that say, you got to look for suffering. You got to try to suffer. You don't need to, it's going to find you. Life is hard. That was the first point. In case you're late and you just walked in. Right? But Paul trusts that God works through evil and brokenness and suffering and difficulty and every trial, even in death, to accomplish his plan. And even though there will be discomfort and pain, he knows, I'm going to stand in the end. That's my deliverance. I'm going to stand. It's not going to ruin me. One, it's going to build an increasing wonder in my life. How's God working? And that wonder is born from trust. And secondly, he sees that God, you're going to see that God is already working in you as much as he's working through you. Now, when you're doing great, you talk about God working through you. God, use me. When you're doing poorly, we don't say, God, use me. We say, God, help me. I want this and that, and where are you? Because I did all these things for you. Where are you? Paul says, rather than turning so inwardly that you only see yourself, turn inwardly in a way where you can see God at the mountaintop and say, I trust you again. You are working in me now. Verse 19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me That's the suffering and the oppression, the humiliation of being chained to a human being, to being held captive like a slave. The the oppression and the injustice, it's going to actually turn out for my deliverance. That word deliverance is the same Greek word for salvation. Now, I used to think that that phrase meant, you could look at it two ways. One, I used to look at it and say, well, because you're praying for me and because the Holy Spirit's working in me, I know that I'm not going to die here. That's clearly not what he's saying. I'm going to show you why. You also believe that he's saying, well, because I'm pr- you're praying for me, because the Holy Spirit is working in me, I know that, that everything's going to turn out okay. That's certainly not what he's saying here. Because in verse 21, he says, whether I live or die, he's saying, look, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. He's clearly not sure what's going to happen next. He's not looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. God's up to something great here. That's not what he's saying. He says, this is bad. You know, Christians have the greatest sense of reality. It's bad right now. But they also have the greatest sense of a deeper reality. They say, you know what? But it's not the end. And it won't ruin me. They're both true. How can something be really bad and yet not ruin you? That's not a fake kind of a poise. It's based and rooted in truth. And Paul understood and knew and trusted in that. He knows it's bad, but he says, I know, I know that I'll be saved not from the suffering, but I'm going to be saved through the suffering. Because of the suffering, it's going to turn out for my salvation, my ultimate salvation. What does that mean? Verse 20, God's going to give me sufficient courage so that no matter what, He's going to use me to glorify him. And then, even if I'm in chains, even if I may die, he says, it will not ruin me. Actually, God's going to use this suffering to eventually completely 
remake me, completely save me once and for all. Not just for my sin. You know, becoming a Christian, Christ's death on the cross, it doesn't just save you from your sin. It doesn't just save you from the penalty of sin. Salvation is not just some forensic, some sort of legal standing that you have, although it is. It's every bit that. He's not just saving you spiritually. He's not just saving you from the pollution of sin, the indwelling power of sin. That's not what he's just saving you from. Paul says one day he's going to save me from evil and sin and this world altogether. One day I'm going to, you can make me, you can, you can, you know, chain me, arrest me, beat me, bring me all the way down to the ground. You will only, like a seed that's been planted into the soil, make me rebloom into my ultimate flourishing as a flower of God, the f- ultimate fruit of God's spirit. That's what he says. It's amazing. Even if you die, you will only remake me. And so he says, I have joy. This is proof for me. Now I even know even, this makes me even more steadfast, he says, because I see what God is doing around me. You see that? This suffering, he says, it doesn't lead me to abandon God, but to trust God at the top of the mountain, who is using every circumstance for his glory, but also for my ultimate good. And even if he dies, he says, this will complete me and remake me. So it can never ruin me. There's a poise. There's a resilience that's brought on by trust that leads Paul to wonder and joy. He says, I rejoice. He feels it. Yes, there's sadness. Yes, every day I'm sure it was hard. There's lots of sweating and he's groaning and he's working at times. There's, there's even fear. But there's a trust underlying all of that. You know, courage is a poise. That's, that's, your courage is a poise that develops not in the absence of fear, but seeing, seeing in the context the presence of God in any circumstance in a way that shapes you to trust him more. And joy results joy results from living into this, living into the certainty of a future glory that is our ultimate place a future glory if you're a theologian in here you're going to say it's your eschatological view of the world right a real reality that's based on that trust because you know that no one nothing could ever take that away from you and so It only proves out, your suffering proves out the nearness of God even more through every circumstance. Well, how do you get there? What's the secret? In verses 19 to 20, Paul says, well, I expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed that what has happened will turn out for my salvation. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. In other words, in the end, if I have Jesus No matter what happens to me, if I have Jesus, I could have lost everything, but if I have Jesus, if I could have lost my home, but if I have Jesus, I could have lost my status and reputation, and he did, and he did, and he did, but if I have Jesus, I may die, and he does. He says, I will live. I will stand. So having Jesus is the most important thing in my life, you see. In fact, he says, for me to live, to have Jesus is my life.
It's very important. Why? Because the Apostle Paul is saying, how suffering shapes you. Suffering is going to shape you one way or another. Everyone here, there's two realities. One, we're all sinners. Two, we're all sufferers in some way, shape, or form. The question is whether or not you are children of God. We're all sinners. We're all succumbing to evil. We're all committing evil in some way, shape, or form. And we're all suffering, either because of wrongs done against us or just because it's a broken world. It's a broken world, and things just happen to us. But are you a child of God? Paul says, having Jesus is the most important thing in my life. It is my life. It's very important because he's saying how suffering shapes you is based on what you've chosen to hook into, knowing that you are a sinner, knowing that you are a sufferer. What you've chosen to hook into to save you. He's talking about his deliverance. What have you hooked into? What does that mean? Think about it. If you believe, I mean, there's always somebody who believes that, look, we're just a bunch of atoms that somehow collided randomly. Science, right? We're so into science these days. We, we've, we're just a bunch of atoms that have, that have hooked into, uh, sorry, uh, collided into each other randomly, and uh, we become life. If that's what you believe, chaos, everything is random. Life has become, is this random thing that happened, the Big Bang, all that kind of stuff, right? Then this present world, this visual reality, that's all, that's all you got. If you believe that, then life has no meaning. Because if we're just a bunch of atoms that have collided randomly, one day it's all going to come to an end. We're just a bunch of atoms. And so life can be dehumanized. Paul's chains are justifiable, in a sense, because it's just life. It's meaningless. Life has no meaning. There's no meaning in suffering. Nothing you're going through right now has any meaning or purpose. There's no one at the mountaintop. There's no such thing, then, as morality. Then what? Well, then you've got to live for yourself. That's all you've got. And many of you, whether or not you believe in God, whether or not you're in the church, whether or not you've grown up in the church, whether or not you said you placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, that's how you live anyway. You're just living for yourself. I see all your Instagram stories. That's what we, if, you may not be living for yourself, but that's what you want to show other people. Self-indulgence. All the good stuff, the good life, pleasure. It's all going to end anyways, so you might as well just live it up. And who cares who you step over? Who cares who you crush because strong over the weak. That's life, and it's natural. Then wealth and power, sex, fulfilling your appetite, it all matters. That's all that matters, in fact. That's what we hook into. Gide Maupassant, if you're an English major, if, you're, if you've read a lot, Gide Maupassant, French author, he's the father of the modern-day short story. He lived his life fulfilling every pleasure, uh, succumbing to every indulgence. Uh, he ended up taking his own life by stabbing himself with a letter opener in his room. And if you go to visit his headstone, his epitaph reads, I've taken pleasure in everything and found joy in nothing. Paul is saying that some people live for pleasure. Other people live for approval. The reality is that everybody is hooking into something. Everybody is hooking into something to define themselves. 
something that they're going to def- use to define themselves to, to, as a result of what suffering has done in their lives, I got to hook into something. It's your escape, maybe. It's your deliverance. It's your salvation. If you've experienced financial disaster, then I need to hook in. I need to get wealthy, and I need to stay wealthy. You will step over everyone and everything to get there. If you've seen people experience demise in their careers, maybe in your family, and you see the hardships that come with that, if you've grown up without much, you're going to do whatever it takes to make it. I will never go through that again, we say. You've hooked into that as your identity. You will be cruel and ruthless. You'll be a killer. Some people will celebrate that. Other other people will be devastated by that. But what does it matter for just a bunch of molecules that are meaningless and randomly collided to become life? We will easily randomly dissipate one day as well. There's no meaning in it. The Apostle Paul says, no, the ground that I'm standing on is solid. It's solid ground, he says. It's when the sufferings and the difficulties and the betrayals of life come, and that shakes you. It's going to shake everyone. That's why, you know, oh, it's all good. You know, that, that's a lie. It's going to shake everyone. It's meant to do that. That's why it's called suffering. Right? It's going to shake you. It's going to test every foundation. The reason why we go through suffering is because every foundation is being tested. God is using that suffering, that circumstance, to test every foundation that you are standing on that you believe is giving you a sense of worth, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of validity in life. And when that happens, it will either corrode you, erode that foundation, corrode you, or it will save you. And Paul says this will turn out for my salvation. Because the ground that I'm standing on is solid as a rock. I know what's happened to me. Because of my suffering, I'm even more sure that God will use this to shape me and renew me all the way up until the point where I die. And when I die, then I will be completed and remade whole, he says. Tim Keller's famous phrase Sometimes you don't realize that Jesus Christ is all you need until you realize that Jesus Christ is all you have. Paul says, God will use this to save me because for me, the rock that I am standing on to live is Christ. Until you see that, you're always going to say, to live is wealth, to live is drinking, to live is relationships, to live is marriage. To live his career, to live his pleasure. Paul says, yes, maybe my ministry is going to come to an end. Maybe my calling is finished, perhaps. Maybe I'm never going to get out. But it's not my life. That's not my life. When Jesus cried, it is finished, he wasn't crying, I'm done, it's over. That's not what he was saying. He's not talking about the end of his life. He's talking about the end of death. He's talking about the end of sin. He's talking about the beginning of real life new life. So when your retirement portfolio crashes, when your crypto accounts are crashing, before you sink further, you got to ask yourself, what ground am I really standing on? Now, there are people in this room who say, well, because we're Eastern, a lot of Easterners here, right? 
You know, we say, well, you know, wealth and, you know, my job, that's just, that's just a means. That's not really important to me because what it's really about is family. Family is what's important to me. Friends, is that what Jesus said? That all that stuff isn't important, just family? I'm not the one who preached, hate your mother, hate your father. <laughs> right? It's all shaky ground, he's saying. It's all shaky ground. Paul says, I am on solid ground. To live is Christ. He has held my soul into eternity, and that gave him poise, courage, resilience, and joy. How do you get it? Where do you get that power to have that kind of poise and joy? John chapter 12, Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I mean, he's talking about himself, obviously, because every time Jesus talks about his glory in the gospel according to John, he's talking about his death. He's talking about the cross. So what he's saying is, I'm going to die. The time has come for me to die. And I need to die. It's bad for me, but if I die, because if I live, I'm only one seed, but if I die, I will produce many seeds. God will work through that brokenness. I have to be split apart. You know how seed grows, right? One day that shell that you're in, it just explodes. But he says, when that happens, many seeds will be born from this. Not too different from when the apostle Paul saying, I'm in prison, I'm arrested, I'm suffering, I'm being torn apart. I'm chained and humiliated and suffering oppression and justice. And yet, I rejoice because now the gospel is going in places I never thought it would go. Jesus Christ says, my glory is the cross. That's ultimate suffering, the ultimate death. He says, I'm doing it for my people. I need to die so that you will grow. I need to die so that you will have hope. I need to die. Peter said, no, we're not going to let anything happen to you. He says, you better let this happen to me. That's my glory. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus is working. Paul was chained to a praetorian guard. Jesus was nailed to a cross so that he wouldn't be able to move. He's never going to get down, he said. So he's working and he's sweating and he's bleeding and he's dying. He's suffering. Every breath that Jesus took while he was on the cross, he had to fight for that breath. It was painful. If you know anything about being crucified, there's a suffocation that's taking place. If you don't bleed to death and there's shock and all this stuff is going on at the same time. Paul, at just the possibility of death, he says, to live is Christ's. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, at the certainty of his death, he was demonstrating what it means to live is you. I need to die. To live is you. For the glory of God, ultimately, to live is you. That's the love of Jesus. That's the love of Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ gave up his life. He literally died for his people to see us live, to see us flourish, to see us being shaped in him. For him to live is us. Our sufferings, our hardships, it makes us more like Christ. 
Why? Because when you suffer, when you suffer, you will never be more connected to Jesus than in your own suffering. We call that union. You will never be more connected to Jesus than in your suffering. So that in that moment of your suffering, when you're suffering because of Jesus, persecuted maybe in your job or in your social circles, maybe even in your family, when you are suffering in that moment, when it's really, really hard and you can't breathe, you were connected to Jesus, struggling for every breath on the cross. When you were betrayed, when you were betrayed because of your faith, because you're a Christian, you're connected to Jesus' betrayal. When you are on trial and accused of things that you may not have done, and every impulse is to fight back, you're connected to Jesus Christ who was silent in the midst of betrayal and accusation. When you are on trial, it's Jesus on trial. When you are rejected, all of his friends rejected him and abandoned him. Look to the cross. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate abandonment, cosmic abandonment by his own father, he says. There was a physical earthquake. There was a shaking. But there was in that moment a cosmic quaking. Because there he's saying that what I have hooked my life into, to live is God. I and the father are one. And there on the cross, he was legally being separated and torn apart. Why? Because God has his eyes set on his people. And so Jesus, for the glory of his father, for the love of his father, poured his heart and his love for his people. And he said, so I will endure. You will never be more connected to Jesus than in your suffering. You know how Jesus endured? The author of Hebrews said Jesus Christ went to the cross. He endured the cross scorned its shame. Why? For the joy set before him. Yes, he was bleeding. Yes, he was dying. Yes, it was incalculable suffering. And he died. But in the end, there was joy. People are hurling insults at him scorning him, scoffing at him, mocking him. He had his eyes set on that glorious reality beneath the reality. There was joy. And so when he had finished his labor, his death and resurrection are the rock on which we can stand so that when we suffer, we can have joy in him. The gospel shows us the real reality beneath the visible reality and to the degree that you can trust that for Jesus to live is God his glory to live is you his people you can say to live is Christ and when you suffer you will connect with him you will connect with him deeply that means on one hand you will weep and you will grieve maybe even have anger but there will be joy and there will be poise and resilience without sin no bitterness because you trust God is at the top of the mountain working and sees with a full view for your glory and for your good and if God can work through the death of his own son for his glory and our good, he can work through our suffering to make us more like Jesus and produce joy. You can say then, you, you can beat me, you can tear me down, you can pulverize me. You are just merely adding me to the fertilizer so that gospel seed can grow and flourish in me and then through me. 
even if you end me, you will only remake me and complete me. And then that seed will one day burst into an oak of righteousness, they say, in Isaiah 63. A tree that is planted by streams of water, Psalm chapter one. Full bloom, flourishing for all eternity. That was Paul's joy. That was his salvation. Let that be your present reality. Let it be your joy and salvation. Let's pray together.